the Sunday Sermons Podcast. This morning we're going to jump right into the second day of a series we're simply calling Jesus. We're exploring the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the stuff the Bible says about Jesus, and just kind of walking through. And we're trying our best to just look at the whole thing with fresh eyes instead of, hey, there's this one big point we want to make. How can we make what Jesus said here say that? We're just trying to see what the story kind of tells us. It's kind of hard. It's hard for all of us, but that's what we're trying to do. And here's the dream. I shared this last week. We want to just kind of soak in Jesus so much that we become more like him. Kind of like hot water going through coffee grounds actually becomes coffee. Or when you marinate something, all the things that you're marinating takes on that one shared flavor. Or have, have you? how many here like chili? Do you like to make chili? Okay, you probably have some specific things that do and don't go in chili. We're not going to go there. I don't want this to be controversial. But if you like chili, here's one thing you probably know. The longer you cook it, the better, right? Okay, and then also, if you let it cool and put it in the fridge and heat it up the next day, sometimes it's even better than that. Am I right? Okay, that's that's the dream. That's what we're trying to do. We're just trying to just all be together in Jesus so much that we all just start to smell like him. That's the dream, okay? So let's just jump right back in. If you missed the first one, um, I'm sorry, it's still online. It'll be there in several formats for a while. But we're going to pick up the story where Matthew left off, and he simply says this. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Magi from the east came to visit him. I want to clear up a couple things really quickly. They were not kings, and the only reason people think there were three of them is because of the song, obviously, and because there were three kinds of gifts. There might have just been two of them. We know it was plural. There might have been 20 or 50. We don't know. But these guys were magi, and we don't really have a modern equivalent of them. They were sort of mystics, sort of philosophers, sort of astronomers, sort of astrologers. They weren't Jews, but they were more aware of what God was doing than some of the Jews were. I don't even have time to go deep into who these guys were. I do want you to know it took them almost two years to get to Jesus. Okay, as you read the text, you'll see he was a toddler. They were living in a house. They didn't show up the night he was born. So that doesn't mean you have to throw away your pretty little, like, kingly-looking things and and camels at at Christmas time. But just kind of know that somebody kind of added some stuff to this story. Um, Anyhow, I'll leave that where it is. Here's, here's, again, it's so hard for me to edit down all the things I'd love to share with you as we walk through the stories. There are so many layers of truth and beauty in these stories. And you could spend an entire sermon, and maybe we will on Christmas, I don't know, talking about what gold and frankincense and myrrh represent. But the bottom line, just from a bird's eye view, as we're trying to just see Jesus' story, here's the bottom line that I believe why they gave him those gifts. They were the most valuable things in the world at that time. You could trade gold or frankincense or myrrh for anything. And God knew what was about to happen next. For this poor little carpenter family living in a village that they did not belong in, this was like winning the lottery. They suddenly just got more wealth than they'd ever seen in one place at once. And watch what happens. When they had gone, that's the Magi, An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. 
Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child and kill him. How would they pay for a trip like that? How would they afford to go to someplace, a whole other country, and live for a while before they could start getting a job or get a reputation as a carpenter? God provided for his family. We don't know that much about Joseph. This is one of the last times he appears in this story. But I love this guy. He not only obeyed God, but he always obeyed him instantly. You see that here. So he, that's Joseph, so he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I call my son. And this is confusing to some people, so I'd, I'd like to kind of just, everybody take a big deep breath. Let's just say, nice, awesome. Because there's some awesome stuff in the prophecies that are quoted in the New Testament. And a lot of times what actually happens is we get confused and derailed. Maybe it's just me. But I'm like, wait a second. Where does it say that in the Old Testament? I don't see that. But there's several different ways that prophecies are fulfilled, especially in the life of Jesus. And several different ways that the New Testament writers um, quote the Old Testament writers. So I just want to lay this out for a second, and then we're going to keep going with the story. Is that, is that cool? One of them is a very verbatim and just, just deliberate fulfillment of prophecy, much like a couple weeks ago when we celebrated Palm Sunday. Jesus knew there was this prophecy in Zechariah about the Messiah coming in riding on the foal of a donkey. So he arranged so that he would ride into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey. That was a choice he made. There are a bunch of other things where I know that God, Jesus is part of the Godhead. They were in, he was involved, of course, but God the Father made sure that he was born in Bethlehem and things like that. That's another very deliberate kind of thing that's happening. But then there's some other ones that are more vague. And sometimes it's even hard to see that. And there's a couple things going on. One is what, what some people call cyclical prophecy. And that is where the prophecy comes true, sort of, in the time of the prophet, and then it comes back around and comes true in an even bigger way later in ways nobody expects. And this is some of the ways that we see some of these. You go back and you read the original prophecy and you go, what in the world? I don't think that's what that was actually talking about. But what's happening is, as the writers of the, of the Gospels had been sharing these stories orally for decades before they started writing them down, as they tell the story, people are going, what about, does anybody besides me do this? Like when you watch a game or you watch a movie or you, you read a good book and you talk about the other people, talk about it with the other people who also like it. You know what I'm talking about? And you're like, remember that one part? And they go, yeah, well, that wouldn't have even happened if this wouldn't have happened first. And you go, <sighs> do you know what I'm saying? Or that one line that seemed like it meant nothing at the beginning of the movie. And then they go, hey, you remember at the end when this that's what that meant. Does that make sense? And it really is just kind of a throwaway line on one, on one level, but it means so much more when you know the whole story. This is what the original writers were doing. And that's, that's, here, here's a couple of examples that happen right here, and then we're going to just charge to the story. Out of Egypt, I called my son is a quotation from Hosea chapter 11. And if you go back to read Hosea chapter 11, it's a beautiful poem. God is, has spoken through Hosea, and it's about his love for Israel as a nation. 
But most of the time, when he's talking about Israel as a nation, he uses female pronouns. This is a unique one. Kind of like, you know, we go, stand beside her and guide her. When we talk about America, you know what I'm saying? That's normal. This one, he, 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 he talks about it as Jacob as a person and says, out of Egypt I call my son. So they knew there was something unique about it in this beautiful poem about how much God loves Israel. And so later on, when Matthew is writing this down, he's like, his actual son went to Egypt and then came back. Does that make sense? He's not saying, hey, by the way, Hosea said the Messiah will go as a small child to Israel. He's just going, there's so many layers of goodness in this story. Holy mackerel. There's also some tragedy. All the way back in Jeremiah 31.15, he had said that there would be a slaughter of some sort. It was vague. They didn't know what it would be like. What it turned out to be was Herod slaughtering all the kids two years old, all the boys two years old and younger, and his attempt, failed attempt, thank God, to kill the young king of the Jews. But God had fended that off and sent them to Egypt and then called his son back out of Egypt. And we're so thankful he did that. Matthew 2:22. When he heard, that's Joseph again, when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. Now this one really threw me for a long time. Because there's nowhere in the Old Testament anywhere that says Jesus will be called or the Messiah will be called a Nazarene or that he would be born in Nazareth. In fact, history tells us that Nazareth didn't even exist until a couple of decades before Jesus was born. So how could they have predicted that he'd be born there? So what's going on? You want to know? I was so excited. It, it just like, ah, when I finally found this out. Couple things. The word Nazar that we say Nazareth actually sounds more like Netzaret. And there's a Hebrew word that sounds exactly like Netzer. It is Netzer, and it means branch. And a lot, one of the most common symbols of the Messiah in the Old Testament prophecies was an idea of a branch. Here's two examples. In Isaiah 11, it starts out this. It's a messianic passage and it starts out, a shoot will come out from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, and that's the word netzer, will bear fruit. Or John just read part of this passage earlier, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now pay attention, this is really cool. Nazareth, because it was so new and for several other reasons, was a place you did not want to admit you were from. The title of Nazareth was not a compliment. When they said Jesus of Nazareth, it was a slam. I don't know what a modern equivalent would be, but it would be something like Jesus the redneck, maybe, here in Tennessee. I'm not sure exactly what that is or if that's really even a slam anymore because Jeff Foxworthy's kind of made rednecks the heroes. So 
I don't know what that would be, but it was not a compliment. If you were from Nazareth, nobody really wanted to hang out with you. And listen to this description. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and held in low esteem. And we see this happen to Jesus time after time after time. And, and Matthew and the other writers are going, and he was even a Nazarene. Mind blown. Does that make sense? They're not saying there's a passage in the Old Testament that says this. They're saying you can even see this in this. There's so much, so many layers of beauty in God's planning. Last week, we ended up where Jesus, the one glimpse we have of him when he's about 12 years old, and he, he says that he has got to make it his business to do God's will on earth. And he kept doing that his whole life. That was not even the first time, I'm sure. It's just the one glimpse we have. And as you see him actually start his ministry, roughly the age of 30-ish, this is, this is where you really start to see Jesus doing some things. And the more I've been just percolating this myself and praying about what God wanted us to explore together, the more it's just been so obvious to me that every single detail that Jesus' life is showing us at this point is all about two things. One is he's all about new beginnings, real new beginnings, like fresh starts, like wipe the slate clean and start all over, like be born again. And the second thing is, that only happens when we do exactly what he says, and we do it his way. And when those two things happen, there's power in what Jesus says and what Jesus does and who Jesus is that nobody else can offer and nothing else can reproduce. It starts here with John showing up. Back in Malachi chapter 3, God said this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire. Or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. And then the Lord will have men who bring offerings in righteousness. Another recurring theme in the Old Testament is where God not only commands us to do certain, commanded the people then to do certain sacrifices and ceremonies, but then he'll come back around and he'll say, you're not practicing justice in the world. You're not taking care of the poor. You're not helping widows. You're not reaching out beyond your own people and trying to reach the Gentiles. Therefore, your sacrifices actually nauseate me. I wish you'd just stop. What I'd like is for your sacrifices that you make here to represent everything else you do throughout the week. That's what I need. And so here we see that even the message of John and what John's going to say about Jesus is saying this is the way that's going to happen. This Messiah is actually going to make it possible for us to offer God sacrifices that he actually likes. 
sacrifices that actually represent that we are living righteously. We are living justly in the world all the time. And then we come to him just to worship. Some more prophecies about John from Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Of course, any sin that's forgiven ultimately is thankful. It points back to the cross and the empty tomb, right? And we all know this ultimately. But this is also a reference to all that Israel had been through. The exile and the return and the rebuilding and Ezra and Nehemiah's day. And then several centuries of silence. No more prophets, no more anything. It was like God had abandoned them. So part of what John showing up and then immediately after Jesus showing up, part of what that was supposed to tell them is, we're done now. You've been punished. We're starting something new. We're going to wipe the slate clean and start over, guys. So comfort, comfort. And get ready. Something new is about to happen. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Wonderful passage. Hope you read the whole thing later. It ends like this. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Again, notice that's all people. I love Mark. He's just so brief and so to the point. I like how he resumes the story here. He just says, and so. But it means all of that stuff we just explored. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. That just seems like a random detail. And you can skip over this. Uh, just like if you're watching a Marvel movie and you just don't pay attention to any of the what they call Easter eggs. How many know what I'm talking about here? There's all the little clues in the story that also mean this or might mean this. You can just watch the story and not even care. Or if you're really into it, if you're a comic book geek, then it really matters, right? You know what I'm saying? You can skip over and you can go, okay, now we know what he looked like. But listen, this is so cool. Back in 1 Kings chapter 1, there's a story where the prophet Elijah sends some word to uh, King Ahaziah, one of the evil kings. And the, and the king really doesn't like what the messengers tell him. And he goes, who sent the word? Who said this? And they said, well, he wore clothes made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. And he goes, oh, no, that's Elijah the Tishbite. Several, we're, we're kind of fast forward here, but Jesus referred to Malachi 4, which says, I will send you Elijah before I send you the Messiah. In Matthew 11, Jesus straight out comes out and says, Elijah did come. John the Baptist was the Elijah that was to come. That outfit he wore was one of the many, many clues. Locusts throughout the Bible is a symbol of punishment and judgment for sin. 
okay? Maybe he just ate locusts and honey. Maybe he just liked it. You know what I'm saying? Maybe the honey was just to make the locusts taste better. You know what I mean? If that's all you eat, maybe you drizzle it. Maybe, I don't know. I'd get tired of just eating those two things. But I I see a lot more in that, especially because in Joel chapter 2, which Peter quotes in Acts when the church starts and says, now you're seeing this, you're seeing this in real time. All of this stuff that you'd heard about is happening. What the prophet Joel said in Joel chapter 2, there's this promise that says, and I will restore to you everything that the locusts have eaten. Maybe he just ate locusts. But again, I'm going through and my mind's being blown like, wow, but there's so many layers of goodness in here. And honey, honey always represents provision from God. Remember the promised land was going to be flowing with milk and honey. That means it's such a lush place that all the flowers grow really well and the bees are doing great. Right? Mark 1, verses 7 to 8. And this was his message, John's message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Once again, we see just so many layers of beauty in symbols. Water is one of the most pervasive symbols throughout the scripture. In the second verse, it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. We don't know exactly how this happened. We don't know exactly how this story flows, but it's in the Bible. It always has been if you miss this part, but somehow the planet with water on it was already there before God said, let there be light and started the whole seven days of what we call the seven days of creation. There was already something there, and then he brought a new beginning out of it. All the way through. Then you got the flood. We just sang about the parting of the Red Sea. You split the sea so I could walk right through it, right? It just happens over and over. A bunch of those stories actually happen in the actual Jordan River. And here's John saying, you've got to start over. Repentance simply means you've got to start over completely. You're going this way, you do a 180, you go this way. You've got to start over with God. And here's how he wants you to symbolize this. We're going to submerge you in the water and bring you back out again. Nothing special about the Jordan River. Nothing special about that motion except for what it symbolizes and that it was it, what it represents. Matthew 3, 13 to 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee. Everybody goes, I thought this was a story about Jesus. Here we go. Jesus just showed up. And then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him by saying, I need to be baptized by you. And you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. For it is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Those words sound pretty familiar, don't they? Fulfill righteousness. Jesus had never sinned. He didn't need to repent. But this was God saying, I really like this symbol, guys. Even Jesus is going to officially reboot. Even Jesus is going to officially start the next phase of his life, wipe the slate clean, and start something new through this idea of baptism. 
As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Two things. Two things I hope we can remember from this. I've said them several times. We'll say them a couple more before we wrap up here in a few minutes, but I need you to hear this. Jesus creates new beginnings when we do what he says his way. I'd like you to say these out loud with me. Let's say it together. Here we go. Ready? Jesus creates new beginnings when we do what he says his way. Right after his baptism, he went out into the wilderness and was tempted. We're going to come back to that later. I told you we're going to mostly be chronological in this, but we're going to come back around because he had a lot to say about temptation and sin and the devil and demons, and we're going to revisit all of that on another day. So just kind of put a pin in that one for a second. Also, next week is Mother's Day, and we're going to talk about Jesus and mothers, and especially his mom. Does that sound appropriate? Are we good with that? So we're not going to spend as much time as I normally would at this point on the story of turning water to wine. But please note, is there anything more about new beginnings than changing one thing into a completely different thing at a wedding? Are you tracking? I mean, everything he's doing here is absolutely saying, start over. If you do it my way, it'll happen in miraculous ways you can never even imagine. And then he goes and he cleanses the temple. I think people would freak out if I came in here and started turning stuff over. If some random stranger came in, even if you kind of knew him from the community and started messing around in our atrium, you shouldn't be serving coffee. I'd personally be offended, I'll tell you that right now. Don't mess with the cop. But again, everything he's doing at this part of his ministry as he's kicking it off is just declaring everything is new here, people. Pay attention. I love this one little glimpse of him teaching and what he says here. We're going to look at this in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17. When Jesus had heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Here's one of those direct prophecies. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. By the way, Matthew is quoting directly from Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2 here. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Notice it's very similar to John's message, the same repentance idea. You got to start over, but now there's an added element. The kingdom of heaven is near. He's not just saying it's coming soon. He's saying it's close to you. It's not this distant, way off in the untouchable, whatever heaven is, distance. It's here. The kingdom of God is here. Pay attention. That's new. 
He goes to speak in the Sabbath. It says it, it was as was his custom. And I'm just going to read what he says. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, remember, this is the first time Jesus has officially taught anything. Okay? A few people have heard a few things. He's got a few. That, this is his first message, if you will. And he just goes to the regular synagogue. It's his turn to read from the scripture. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's talking about the year of Jubilee. Wish I could go deep into that this morning, but that's a whole other thing. It's a wonderful, wonderful concept. But he's, he's talking about that. And he goes, this is the ultimate year of Jubilee. We're living it right here. That's what I'm here to do. Then he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And in our culture, it, it, whenever I go to sit down, you're probably going, oh, he's, he's done, right? But, 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 but for them, they would stand to read the scripture. And maybe we should do that more often. In, the, in my sermons, you'd be up and down all, the whole time because I love to just walk you through the actual scripture. But whenever scripture was read, they all had to stand up, kind of like when you sing the national anthem. And then you'd sit back down, and the rabbi, can we do this? Would sit down to do the talking. So when Jesus sat down, he wasn't done. He was just getting started. And they start mumbling. They go, wait a second. We know this guy. Isn't that the carpenter's son? And so Jesus, this is his big moment where he could have said, it's me. I'm the Messiah. Everybody follow me. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And instead he goes, no prophet is accepted in his own hometown. And then he starts reminding them that because of that, because that sometimes the people that God first reached out to reject him, he goes elsewhere. He says, in Elijah's day, there were a lot of widows, but he sent him to be provided for in another country by a widow in Zarephath in Sidon. And, and there were probably a lot of lepers back then in Elisha's day, but only Naaman the leper got healed. If you remember that story, he got healed by trusting God enough to dip himself in the Jordan River seven times. Once again, it was all about the obedience and the trust, not about the water itself. But there's the Jordan showing up again. But Jesus tells him this. And how do you think they liked it? Let's read it together. Show you. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. It scares me a little bit. If that's what happens when Jesus preaches, I'm not sure what might happen to me someday. But thankfully, nobody's run me out yet. Brothers and sisters, as we wrap up today, I want to I say it one more time and make this as personal as we possibly can. I want you to invite the Holy Spirit to speak in your heart individually as well as us collectively. Jesus creates new beginnings when we do what he says his way. Jesus creates new beginnings when we do what he says his way. 
when all the parts of that equation are there, amazing, powerful, miraculous things can happen in our lives. We can leave behind sin that we never could leave behind on our own. We can leave behind anything that we need to leave behind. We can do the things God is calling us to do that we could never do on our own. But we have to come to Jesus on his terms. We have to trust him. We have to put our faith in him and trust him that he can create a new beginning in ways that we could never imagine, that we never really could. Nobody else ever really could do, but it is possible through him. This morning, uh, if you guys would, if you just play just a couple chords for a second, give them some space. Here's what I'd love for you to do. Just take a moment before we stand, before we sing. Just ask Jesus what he wants to start in you this morning. Because the same Jesus that we're studying is the same Jesus we worship every single Sunday. It's the same Jesus that wants so bad to give each one of you a new beginning. Ask him what he wants. And then when we stand and we sing together, give it to him.